All right, welcome back to the Bill Bennett Show, the podcast with an honest look at the current administration. We translate Trump, evaluate him, assess him, often defend him, see what he's doing, and give you a sense of what we think of it. Coming up on this episode of the Bill Bennett Show, we'll hear from Senator John Kyle, former senator from Arizona. No one knows more about the defense of America than John Kyle. We'll take a look at America and the world and talk about its defense. The Super Bowl is Sunday, and James Brown from the NFL Today on CBS will spend some time with us to preview the big game. Hey, before we get going, I want you to know you can email us now. We'd love to hear from you. It's BillBennettPodcast at gmail.com. That's BillBennettPodcast at gmail.com. Let me address a little bit uh, the recent allegations of sexual misconduct against Steve Wynn. You all are familiar with my ongoing interview series with Steve Wynn on this podcast. I'm close with Steve. I am a friend of his. And my comment is this. I do not know what happened. These allegations, of course, must be taken seriously. And I have no doubt that Steve Wynn is taking them very seriously. We all know that at this point. I'm very surprised by the allegations because this does not seem like the man I have known and dealt with and seen interact with his staff over many years. Well, I have no way of knowing what, if anything, happened. I do know Steve to be a man of personal integrity, leadership, and a man much beloved by his employees. I have visited with Steve any number of times and have spent time with him and his wife. And My wife and I have spent time with him and his wife on many occasions. I know him to be a good man, an honest man, and a straightforward man. These allegations, which apparently uh, refer to events that took place some 15 years ago, Uh, Again, I do not know what happened. I will leave that to Mr. Wynn's own comments, uh, where I would point out he has denied uh, very strongly uh, that he has ever assaulted any woman. Uh, And uh, he, uh, of course, deplores the situation in which he finds himself. A couple of other thoughts about Steve Wynn. His organization uh, is one of the strongest organizations, corporate organizations in the country, if you've listened to any of these podcasts, you know that uh, his employees think the world of him. Um, I've stayed at his hotels. That's where I stay when I go to Las Vegas. And his employees sing his praises. I have never heard a bad word about Steve Wynn said by any of his employees. And I make it a point of asking them what they think of him. I've met countless employees. And this comes up in conversation because of my uh, podcast with Steve. And I'm very curious what people think. Um, His employees love working at Wynn. They describe themselves as working for Mr. Wynn and not just a business. Uh, It's a motivated, positive team. The people there seem to have great confidence in him. They have strong training programs. Uh, I think on the last podcast we did with Steve, he talked about how he was going to give a raise to everybody, a bonus to everybody in light of this tax cut, everybody who made less than, I don't know, fifty or $60,000. In any case, the Steve Wynn I know is not the one in the Wall Street Journal story as to what actually happened. Uh, it all predates by a long period of time, a number of years, um, my uh, acquaintanceship with Steve and my friendship with Steve. So I will leave that to Steve and his spokesman in Las Vegas to clarify. All right, we will be running more of those uh, discussions with Steve uh, in a bit. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. So the big story of the uh, week, Bill, is the State of the Union speech Tuesday night. President Trump, uh, I know you were on Fox News for the pre-State of the Union uh, talk. And, of course, you watched it. You were on Fox and Friends the day after. Um, What do you think about the State of the Union speech itself? 
Yeah, it was in, uh, within a block of uh, all the activity. Uh, not the designated survivor this time. <laughs> I want to okay. ask you about that later, about the designated yeah, survivor. Yeah, yeah we'll, do, we'll do that. I thought it was a very good speech, very strong speech. Let me give you a little inside and give the audience a little inside. In the green room, which is, you know, the waiting room before you go on, there were a lot of regular Fox people around, uh, guests and so on. And the buzz out of the White House uh, from, that they were getting was that this was a kinder, gentler uh, speech more compassionate conservatism, more like George W. Bush and so on. Uh, that isn't what we heard. didn't lack compassion, but it didn't have uh, the soft quality that a lot of people thought it would have, uh, you know, extending the olive branch and a different kind of Trump, a Trump with, you know, with feeling and kumbaya. Uh, it was a very strong Trump and a very strong speech. I liked it a lot. I thought it was one of the best speeches uh, I've heard in the State of the Union and uh, delivered well. Uh, and he did something very interesting, uh, Claude, uh, in the speech. He wove the guests into the policy. Often the guests are there as add-ons. Uh, well, I want to talk about taxes. I want to talk about foreign policy. But I want to honor this firefighter, and I want to honor this uh, mom who started a battered shelter, a battered women's shelter. These guests played into his themes. He was talking about uh, immigration and uh, ICE and uh, getting tough on the border with criminals. And so he had the people from Long Island whose uh, daughters were, were killed by MS-13. In fact, uh, immigration, which is probably the number one topic at the moment on the Hill and of great sensitivity, he led into that topic by talking about MS-13 which is not a kinder, gentler way to do it. Um, I think it's fine. There's a hard edge to it. Uh, and then he got to the, quote, generous, and I think it is very generous, close quote, offer uh, on the 1.8 million path to citizenship and so on. But um, it was a, f a speech of firmness and strength. I think Donald Trump looked like Donald Trump, sounded like Donald Trump. And the other thing is this was a very conservative Donald Trump. This was a conservative agenda. And uh, I think that has to please conservatives. I know there's some worry and consternation about the proposal on immigration. But overall, from foreign policy to the uh, whole tax uh, discussion, the economy, uh, lifting the sequester on the military, uh, it was a conservative speech. Uh, you wanted a few words. I gave you more than a few, but that's my summary view. What did, did you have a reaction? So I think you hit the nail on the head about the, the uh, parents from Long Island. Uh, it, it, to me, that was the moment of the speech because he started to talk about immigration and you can tell that the room was getting a little uneasy. But then he talked about those parents and gave their story. And that kind of put the whole thing, you know, in perspective. I mean, to see those grieving parents and to link that to immigration policy because of MS-13. There's the, the, the interesting thing is there's there's a part of the immigration uh, debate, you know, that focuses on the Dreamers, you know, and DACA, and and we get that. But then there's another portion of it that you have to talk about the the, the people who are coming into this country, uh, the gang members. You have to address that. Um, and I think he did a great job with doing it. I think leading with the with uh, lowest uh, level of black and Latino unemployment ever yeah. uh, was really good. Talked about uh, 2.4 million new jobs. Um, I, I do have a question, though. When it comes to the immigration, and you, you, you hit on that, he talked about 1.8, I think, million uh, illegals getting a pathway to citizenship, but then also wanting to build the wall. Those are two like polar opposites of the same kind of policy that they have to work together. Did he set an unrealistic expectation for an immigration policy to get passed by the deadline? Well, there is a great divide. Uh, whether it's reconcilable or not, I don't know. But it's give a little, take a little, um, you know, some for you, some for me. Uh, the number of 800,000 Dreamers is being thrown around. Many people think the number is much higher. 
Uh, I was told uh, in confidence last night by someone close to the negotiations, in fact, someone who was in the negotiations, member of Congress, that this uh, 1.9 was uh, to be the last term. That was to be the last thing held out on the table uh, or held out from the table. That at the end, Trump Trump would say, all right, we won't go with 800,000, we'll go with 1.9. And that would be the last term. Instead, he used it to introduce uh, his proposal. But uh, while saying, okay, I'll be more generous than you thought I'd be in terms of a path to citizenship for uh, the dreamers and like people uh, similarly situated, uh, I want my wall uh, and I want an end to chain migration. I want an end to the visa lottery. And um, yes, uh, this is a classic political deal in Washington. You want you want X, you're going to have to give me Y. Um, he was, of course, posturing and presenting himself as wanting both X and Y. Mm-hmm. Yes, I am prepared to offer this path citizenship because I think that's right and fair. But then uh, we're going to do these other things. Another way to put this is, okay, we're going to be generous to this generation of uh, young people who came you know, without their own consent, uh, just coming with their parents. But after this, we're shutting down the pipeline. We're not going to have this massive number of people coming into uh, coming into our country uh, this time, and then that's it. Then we cut the flow. Hmm. Interesting. And one of the things that I was looking out for, not necessarily what he said, but what he didn't say, they, they talked about him failing to mention Russia. Do you think he needed to mention that at all? No. Um, I mean, he could mention Russia when he talks about the various threats to the United States. As we'll hear later on in this show, our conversation with John Kyle, he talks about Russia and China, uh, you know, as the two major geopolitical threats of the first magnitude. But uh, no, he was uh, primarily talking, um, you know, in foreign policy about ISIS and then about North Korea. By the way, the North Korea talk... um, I didn't hear anything particularly new on this. There was talk, again, ahead of the speech that there would be some bombshell, excuse that mm-hmm. expression in connection with this topic, but some right, yeah, big news yeah, in yeah. regard to North Korea. I didn't hear it. However, I think of all the guests, it may have been the most dramatic moment when he pointed to the warm beer parents, mm-hmm. Otto Warm Beer's uh, parents, uh, just the emotions in their face. But the, all these guests were incredible. I mean, I'm thinking of that New Mexico police officer. Oh, yeah. Who yeah. Uh, who's there with this woman who's, you know, pregnant and, and on heroin. And he, mm-hmm. the officer and his wife, decide to adopt this child. Mm-hmm. Um, I was talking to Newt Gingrich this morning. I said, these are amazing people. Who are these people who can do this? He said, yeah, they're taking on a 20, 22-year burden here. Yeah. Uh, and who knows what problems this child may have because of exposure in utero. And I think they yeah, already generally. had three or four kids yeah, themselves, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. On, on a policeman's salary. Yeah, yeah. No, exactly right. It's extraordinary Americans, and 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 that was one of the president's themes. I thought I heard the loudest applause line for. Do you have a guess? No. Who would that be for? I thought the loudest applause line actually was when he was talking about the flag and standing up for the oh, flag yeah, and yeah, the yeah. national anthem. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, man, I didn't know that we were going to revisit that Super Bowl week. <laughs> but uh, I guess all eyes will be glued on, on the sidelines yeah. on that one. But um, I think that was actually the first really, really loud uh, applause. And uh, I, I don't know if any Democrats did or not. I can't remember whether they, they panned. But uh, Democrats were disorganized uh, and, you know, all over the map. You had these five responses from the Democrats. Right. But also, you know, couldn't they have applauded a good economy? Couldn't they have applauded? And, you know, in God we trust, couldn't they have applauded e pluribus unum? 
Couldn't they have applauded uh, family leave? You know, right. Well, and, and, and he gave them easy. I, I felt easy uh, lines to get along with early in the speech. I mean, he, there was nothing yeah. really controversial in the yeah. first yeah. fifteen to twenty minutes. That you know, if you were looking for for just a, just kind of a way to show some type of unity or to appear as if you're playing along. I mean, he gave you plenty of lines. Um, early in the speech. And, that, you know, you talked about not seeing the compassionate Trump that they said we'd see. Maybe they were comparing it to what people might have expected from him, given some of the, you know, tweets and things that were said. I thought that it, that, 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 that it leaned more towards a comp- I think it was strong. Like you said, I think it was a strong, firm president. But I think that there was a little more compassion than. Fair enough. Uh, I, the compassion, however, was shown for the most part by example to those individuals. Right. Yeah. That's where the compassion of the Warren Beer family, the compassion to the New Mexico police officer, the compassion uh, to the uh, uh, North Korean uh, fellow who's uh, brought his his crutches from Mm -hmm. that horrible, horrible catastrophe. Um, What a story, by the way. Yes, an incredible story. Reminds me of the old saying is that liberals like people in general. They just don't like them in particular. (laughs) Uh, You know, conservatives (laughs) like individual people. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's just that when you talk in general, they're not sure what you're after. Mm -hmm. But singling out those individuals showed, at least I think to to many people, that the president had real uh, heart for them. Mm -hmm. It's not... It's not that the president doesn't have heart. I, th- I think he does have heart. I don't think there's any question about it. It's that he's not wasn't putting it out there in terms of I'm going to use the government, you know, as this uh, major major general charity. Um, I'm going to use it for policy and for the American people. A lot of people believe the takeaway line is, you know, American people are dreamers too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that no doubt will uh, bother the left who would kind of like to have more exclusive territory. Anyway, uh, that, uh, I, I was, I was kind of knocked over. I got home and watched it with Mrs. Bennett and we both thought it, uh, we couldn't remember a better state of the union speech, firm and clear and strong. And again, if you single out attributes of a president, uh, what's the most important one? Historically, I believe I'm accurate in saying the most important one is strength, firmness. Mm-hmm. And he showed that. How important do you think it is the days following the speech to kind of be like maintain a mild kind of calm presidential demeanor on social media and in the, and on television and, and things like that for the president? Well, I, you know, I mean, I, I want to say it'd be nice to have some consistency here, uh, and not to go off into a mad series of tweets. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the tweets don't bother me as much as they bother a lot of people. And it is Trump, and it is his way of directly communicating. How much is it hurting him? I don't know. You know, uh, somebody, uh, many people have pointed out, Obama was more popular than his policies. Uh, Trump may, may be the reverse right now. Mm. Uh, his policies are very popular, and the people think the country is getting better. But his numbers aren't going up. But I don't know what those numbers mean. You know, disapprove of Trump. Or, you know, you like the president. I think a lot of people say, you know, I just can't stand this. I can't stand that. Can't stand this story. I can't stand this tweet. But uh, approve the policies. But would he still be elected today? I think he would still be elected today. Hmm. And if you went by the opinion polls, 38 percent. You know, a lot of people would say no, but wasn't he underwater in the polls at the time of the election? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, th- I think his disapproval was higher than his approval at the time he was elected president. 
I believe that's right. Well, that's interesting. So, uh, designated survivor. You have a designated survivor story. You mentioned it <laughs> earlier. Yeah. Well, of course, it's a TV show now. Do you watch that show? I've never seen it. No. You should watch it. I like it. Uh, I heard it's pretty good. Yeah, it's good. But uh, twice, uh, twice I believe, I know once for sure, I was picked out of the cabinet. If you're in the cabinet, you're in the line of succession uh, to become president. It's president, vice president. Uh, a speaker of the house and so on it goes down the line but the cabinet is in there and so i was uh once or twice chosen as the designated survivor which means you don't go to the capital mm-hmm. you get on a plane and in my case uh, we flew i think to albuquerque new mexico refueled and came back mm-hmm. and uh, my story is i was you know just it was a small air force jet but uh you know a steward and some staff and guy walking around with a handcuff and a set of keys and I asked some steward I said who's that he said, that's the military aide I said what's the handcuff for he said he's he's locked into the carrying the, the military codes the nuclear codes I mean right military aide carrying the nuclear codes uh, the nuclear codes yes sir <laughs> if you're the designated survivor theoretically you uh, are supposed to be ready to take over so you got to be uh, in reaching distance of the nuclear codes Wow. And I said, you know, hey, I'm the Secretary of Education here. You know, I don't, you know <laughs> nuclear codes, <laughs> hey. And then they said, anything else? I said, yeah, does somebody have Mrs. Thatcher's phone number? <laughs> it's just in case, uh-huh. God forbid, of, you know, catastrophe, unthinkable catastrophe. I want to be able to talk to somebody who's thought about these things. Anyway, uh, it's an interesting place to be or an interesting place not to be. But, uh, yeah, designated survivor. It has a kind of status, I guess, uh, didn't used to have because of this uh, successful TV show. Yeah, you should try to catch up on it when you get a moment to binge. Okay. I like the show. The only complaint I have, so Keith, Kiefer Sutherland plays the president. Well, the huh. designated survivor, he's the president now. But he always speaks with this whisper. You know, like, oh. we have to make sure the American people. He doesn't speak in a regular voice. I don't know yeah. whether that's supposed to seem presidential or not, or at least dramatic. Or yeah. Whatever, so. yeah. Anyway, it was uh, it was uh, a good evening for Donald Trump, and we'll uh, we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Bill Bennett Show. Before we move forward, I want to talk to you a little bit about your health. And when it comes to your health, brushing your teeth is actually one of the most important parts of your day. Quip knows that. They've combined dentistry and design to make a better electric toothbrush. Quip is the new electric toothbrush that packs just the right amount of vibrations into a slimmer design at a fraction of the cost of bulkier traditional electric brushes. And guiding pulses alert you when to switch sides, making brushing the right amount of effortless. Quip also comes with a mount that suctions right to your mirror and unsticks to use as a cover for hygienic travel anywhere, whether it's going in your gym bag or your carry-on. And because the thing that cleans your mouth should also be clean, Quip's subscription plan refreshes your brush on a dentist-recommended schedule, delivers new brush heads every three months for just $5, including free shipping worldwide. Quip is backed by a network of over 10,000 dental professionals, including dentists, hygienists, and dental students. Most toothbrushes don't get named one of Time Magazine's best inventions of the year, but Quip did. Find out for yourself just why. Quip starts at just $25, and if you go to getquip.com slash bill right now, you'll get your first refill pack free with a Quip electric toothbrush. That's your first refill pack free at getquip.com slash bill. G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com. G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash bill. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. 
I want to welcome to the podcast my friend, Senator John Kyle, former senator from Arizona. Senator Kyle spent 18 years in the Senate, nine years before that in the U.S. House of Representatives, and it really is great to talk to you. We just started off air talking about uh, technology. I say the key to technology for me is to have an 11-year-old handy whom I replace every three years. That's right. Right. Just so in, that, in my case, it's my grandkids. They're there you very go. Good. There you go. Well, I have to ask you first. Uh, what are you doing, Bill? I'm doing too much right now. I had uh, left the Senate um, after my third term there in January of 2013, uh, with hope to spend a lot more time in Arizona. But I became affiliated with a really good Washington law firm, which has enabled me to stay very much in touch with what's going on back in D.C. I'm also uh, uh, affiliated with the American Enterprise Institute sure. in Washington. Sure. I teach at Arizona State University, both in the law school and undergraduate school out here in Arizona. Uh, recently, I was appointed to the National Commission on Defense Strategy, and that's uh, a group of 12 people that uh, have some knowledge about national defense matters and have an obligation to try to advise the Secretary of Defense on where we're going uh, in the future. So uh, I'm, uh, I'm still pretty busy. You sure are. We appreciate you taking time. Talk to us for a few minutes. Uh, do you miss the Senate? No, I miss the ability to directly influence public policy, mm-hmm. and, uh, but uh, I do not miss the politics involved in governing these days. Yeah, I'll bet. Let's talk about policy. Maybe we'll get into politics a little bit, but let's talk about policy, foreign policy. How do you how do you grade the president? What, what do you think he's done well? What do you think could be done better? I think the first thing he did well was to appoint a lot of uh, really good people in various positions, specifically speaking about his National Security Council, uh, the Department of Defense. You know these guys? You know Mattis? Uh, some. Uh, uh, by the way, let me also mention Nikki Haley at the United right. Nations. Right. I have been enormously okay. impressed with her. Now, the team is not deep enough. There are many, many yeah. uh, billets that remain open for either nomination or confirmation by the Senate and in the Defense Department in particular. And I also suspect in the State Department that's inhibiting our secretaries from really being as effective as they could be. I think this is everywhere. I mean, I you know, I know the domestic department's better education and drug czar's office and all that, and it's very thin. They just haven't gotten their people either nominated or or approved. Excuse me, didn't interrupt. It's a combination of both. Uh, So that's uh, that's inhibiting us. But uh, even with a a, a bare-bones staff, I think in terms of the setting of the policy, and the execution, particularly on the defense side, uh, it's very good. Now, there is much to be done. The president has, for example, laid out a pretty ambitious agenda to begin to rebuild our military. He's announced it, but there hasn't been a whole lot of follow-up, primarily because the next step uh, is with Congress, and it is in the process right now of deciding how much to increase defense spending for the year that we're already halfway through, uh, and they're going to have to get rid of the sequester that impacts yep. defense spend more than anything else and begin to put some pretty big dollars against our military in order to get it back to where it needs to be. Is it right to do that? Do we need more defense spend? Absolutely. I, I wish I could tell you we've, we've gotten several briefings now. Uh, we are now in a situation much like before the Cold War ended, that is to say in peer competition, but this time not with just one other country, but with two, both Russia and China. At the same time, we're seeing two 
very troublesome emerging threats from North Korea and Iran. Yeah. And that's not even speaking of the ongoing uh, work against the terrorists. So we've got a lot of military requirements, and we have a military that's been hollowed out uh, over the years with uh, a great need for modernization, which will cost us some money. We're talking to former Senator John Kyle. Um, is, is it the Navy that uh, needs it the most, the, the, the Blue Ocean Navy, the Blue Sea Navy, that, that we need the most, or is it across the board? It is across the board. Okay. Uh, we're way down in, in the Navy uh, and in all of the other services. Uh, our stuff is getting worn out because we've been using it a lot. Yeah. It hasn't been replaced. And in the nuclear area, uh, we have a confluence of two different uh, things, well, three really, First of all, we allowed our triad to uh, get to the point where all three legs, the bomber force, the nuclear submarine force, and the ICBMs, need to be uh, modernized with a new version all at the same time, at the same time that we need to spend quite a bit of money on facilities, our our national laboratories, and so on. And third, uh, we have to modernize the nuclear weapons that were designed back in the 60s and 70s and built in the 80s, um, while the Chinese and the Russians have just moved forward with uh, a whole variety of new uh, varieties of weapons. The, the biggest threat, just if I could summarize it, is that yeah. the Russians and Chinese have gone to school on, on the United States and how we conduct military operations. They've seen how we do it in the Middle East, for example. And they have figured out what our vulnerabilities are and how they can maximize the advantages that they have to... Uh, take advantage of the areas where we could be weak in times of war. And one of those is in cyberspace. The other is in real space, where you know we rely so much on satellites, on GPS, for example. And it doesn't take much to take out a lot of electronics on which the United States uh, depends. So we have some significant vulnerabilities in the event of conflicts with any of those countries. And uh, the last thing I'll mention is missile defense, which the Obama administration allowed to basically... uh, I was just uh, writing that down, missile defense. There is a proposal. The president's made a proposal, I think 5 or $6 billion. It's not that expensive, missile defense, is it? No. I mean, that's, you know, in a $700 billion defense budget, uh, which is in itself, uh, you know, between 3 and 5% of our GDP, for example, it's just not that much money compared to everything else, but it is a large expenditure. These are numbers over time, by the way. So sure. we've got about a 10 to 15-year project here, and in some areas of the world, we don't have that much time to wait. While we're on that topic, people talk about missile defense. I also talk about the grid, the electromagnetic pulse uh, that could take down our, our grid. Is this a real threat? Is this something that we... Yes. Yes? Yes. Of, of all of the weapons that could most easily and quickly be employed against us to the greatest effect, uh, our EMP, all that, and we, we've known how to do this for years. The Chinese and Russians have weapons to do this. You simply uh, explode a nuclear device uh, in the atmosphere. You don't have to be able to aim it anywhere. You just shoot it up there, detonate it, and the electromagnetic pulses basically fry most electronics uh, within a quite large area on Earth. The Iranians have even tested this, we believe. So um, it's, it's not that hard to do. And by the way, it happens naturally as well. So we're way behind in trying to harden our, it's not just our transmission, electric transmission grid, but a lot of other features uh, on which we depend. And if you stop to think about it, electricity drives everything. It drives the gas pumps. It drives the water pumps. It drives the cooling for refrigerated food. Yeah. I mean, our society today is so reliant upon flip the switch electric uh, electricity 
that if that is disrupted in any significant way, it could cause a huge disruption, not just to our defense capabilities, but society at large. John, could, could it, I just want to get the tense of this right. Could this be done now? I mean, is yeah, it, yes. Yeah, the technology the is not. Okay. Yeah, it's not that hard. Uh, it's it's kind of a rudimentary weapon now. The the Russians and the Chinese understand how to package this in a very efficient way and how to create exactly the kind of damage that they want over a specific area. We could do that as well were we to uh, develop these weapons. But even a rudimentary weapon uh, puts out some of this uh, pulse and damage. Two questions. Uh, one, it kind of almost sounds like a schoolyard question, and excuse me for it, but I, but I always think in these terms, I guess I have ever since the schoolyard. Um, do we think of China and Russia as separate competitors or enemies or joint competitors or enemies. I, we, You and I had conversations in the past about how we matched up against China, how we matched up against Russia. Should we be thinking actually, about how we match up against both of them together? Well, that's a very good question, Bill, because, in fact, the Obama administration viewed them as totally separate and calibrated the amount of nuclear um, strategic deterrent necessary Individually, that is to say, against the Russians, uh, frankly, and that's how the New START treaty numbers were arrived at. But they didn't stop to figure what happens were they to join together. And in that event, we would be at a significant disadvantage. So while they are not allies in a strategic sense today necessarily, uh, they do uh, do some joint exercising together. They, they have gotten much closer together in recent years. And there's nothing to prevent them from from being allies in the event of a conflict with the United States. In fact, I would think this. Were any of those countries to seriously threaten the United States, the other, just to keep kicking us in the shins, would join in in some way. Yeah, so between each other and us, they would take each other in a... In a if it came to, <laughs> right. if it came to it. Do we need, then, to be uh, stronger than both of them together in our defense? Yes. We do. Yes. And, and the primary reason is to deter. For example, if, if we had to push back on the Russians, uh, were they to be engaged in some effort to take over the Baltic countries, Lithuania, uh, Estonia, and Latvia, um, we would need to have sufficient resources um, that could be arrayed against any potential Chinese activity to deter them from even thinking about engaging in that activity while we're trying to thwart the Russian uh, adventure, whatever it may be. Same thing would, would apply were the Chinese to do something in Taiwan or the South China Sea or something which involved U.S. interests that we had to respond to. And you wouldn't want to leave the field open for the Russians to then uh, begin to think that they could do some things while the cat's away uh, and their mouse would play. So, yes, you, you have to be able to deter, and that's the essence of our military today. It is to deter bad action by these major peer competitors, while we have the capability also to actually engage in military conflict where necessary, for example, in the Middle East, and get our job done there. I was looking uh, at my notes for this uh, discussion, this conversation with you, and I had North Korea at the top, and then it just occurred to me, is the whole North Korea thing, uh, obviously it's real and has to be addressed, but going to constitute a, a, a distraction to the larger business, which we're talking about now of dealing with China and Russia? Are we spending too much time and worry uh, on North Korea? No, because uh, the, the reality is that if one calculates the most likely area of conflict immediately, it would be with North Korea. They now have capabilities that demand our significant attention. And because 
because they could uh, employ such a large um, force against South Korea immediately, uh, and South Korea is an ally, we have to take that very seriously. Under the Obama administration, our missile defenses were allowed to deteriorate. Uh, this administration has already uh, done the one thing that it could immediately do, and that is to increase back to the George Bush administration numbers of 44 interceptors deployed in California and Alaska that could, uh, we believe, intercept a, uh, an ICBM coming from North Korea to the continental United States. The numbers are classified, but you have to shoot more than one in order to make sure that you've got the kill. So it doesn't take much of a mathematician to figure out if, if you only have 44 missiles yeah. and uh, yeah. they develop fairly large capability, uh, we're way behind. So we have a whole lot of catching up to do on missile defense both on the ground-based system there as well as the Aegis sea-based and our other medium-range protection for both in Europe and in countries like Japan and South Korea. That's mostly defense, uh, I heard you describing in regard to North Korea. When it comes to offense, is there an offense we can take, a military action we can take that doesn't endanger hundreds of thousands of South Koreans? I mean, is there some middle ground? No, uh, no. <laughs> they're going to be endangered, and uh, yeah. I'm not familiar with the war planning that uh, is, has recently uh, uh, developed with regard to what kind of action we would be forced to take, but it is always recognizing the significant danger to Seoul, South Korea, which is only about 25 miles south of the border with North Korea, and they've got artillery that can reach Seoul and, and really could destroy the city. So um, that is a very difficult thing, which I think suggest that we've got to have a, a defense capability first and foremost to basically say to the North Koreans, look, you can take your best shot, but it's not going to do you any good. We will defeat whatever you throw at us. So it's a waste of money, and let's talk about some alternative course. Um, if we have to do it militarily, uh, you cannot eliminate the risk to, uh, th- th- that is offensively, you can't eliminate the risk to South Korea. Just a couple more questions. You've been very generous already. We, we very much appreciate it. Iran, uh, should we should we uh, clo- destroy that deal? Should we tear up that deal with Iran that Obama made? Well, we should have never made it in the first place. Yeah. It was a one-sided deal. It right. gave them everything that they needed and, uh, and basically front-loaded all of those benefits so they can cheat, and there's not much we can do about it. The problem is that our allies in this, the Europeans primarily, have been so anxious to make this deal and to begin uh, reinitiating uh, commercial uh, endeavors with with Iranian companies, that it would be very difficult for the United States to unilaterally pull out to any great effect. Uh, for the same reason, uh, the whole snap back sanctions idea that John Kerry used to push is laughable. Uh, once the sanctions are off, it's very difficult to put them back on. So we've got ourselves a real problem with Iran. There are some things we can do, some unilateral sanctions, but um, it's very difficult to get the Europeans to cooperate with us on this. shouldn't be, but it is. I always thought you were the best spokesman on these issues and and, and leader on these issues in the Senate, Um, and that's why we encourage you to do lots of things, which you ignored my advice, but that's okay. Uh, Anyway, uh, have I gotten what keeps you up at night uh have we hit the main things that you are worried about as an expert in yeah. american foreign policy and defense? Yeah, it, it can be summarized as follows go ahead i don't think that most americans well in fact i know that except for the very old americans who were part of that greater generation and went through war i don't think we begin to appreciate what it would really be like 
if we had to suffer through a war. It would be catastrophic. So we have to be able to deter war. And our ability right now to scare the Chinese or the Russians enough is greatly at risk. This is why we have to begin building right away as much as we can, as quick as we can, to ensure that they never get the idea that they could succeed in trying to take something that they shouldn't. And that is the central challenge, I think, of our generation right now. Is this administration meeting it or meeting a lot of it? You've mentioned several times the failure of the Obama administration. Are you basically encouraged or greatly encouraged by what you're seeing this administration do? The first thing the administration did that is very encouraging is to release about a month ago our national defense strategy, which embodies the ideas that I presented here. Now we have to follow up, and that includes Congress. And as long as the Congress uh, is divided the way it is, and as long as there are some Republicans that, uh, as as important as the debt is, uh, believe that uh, national defense can take second place, uh, we're going to continue to be unable to improve our military to the point that it has the deterrent quality that we need. That's the big danger that faces us. But you're encouraged by what you're seeing after a year compared to what yes, we saw. Yes, I'm, I'm encouraged that we have changed the policy. Uh-huh. What I what remains to be done is to effectuate that policy with action on the ground, primarily starting with a, an appropriation for defense for the remainder of this year and a budget for next year that begins to meet the requirements that are set forth in the military planning to effectuate the strategy. Yeah, you remind us of, uh, of what government is for, the Federalist Papers, the safety of its citizens, the first object yep. of government. Senator Kyle, thank you very much. You're very kind to Thanks, give us good, good time. Good with you. All the best. Good to talk to you, sir. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. All right, that's Senator John Kyle, and um, as sharp, clawed, and as clear as he's ever been. And um, it's just so encouraging to talk to him, a guy who, you know, the clarity, the straightforwardness. I, I, I will remind folks listening to this podcast, many of whom used to listen to our radio show, Morning in America, that this was the guy whom I wanted to, uh, who I wanted to run for president. Uh, I regarded him as uh, the single most qualified, best qualified people. Um, when you hear him talk about defense and defense policy and what we need to do as a country and what the threats are, I just so clear, so articulate, so well-informed. And um, so uh, unambiguous. And um, you heard him before and you heard him today, Claude, your your reaction. Yeah, I mean, you know, he made a point. uh, It's something I never even thought about that Russia and China are well-schooled in the U.S. military weaknesses and vulnerabilities, and that's something that's got to be considered. I mean, that's a, that's a big deal, especially when you're looking at those EMPs. I mean, that's, right. you know, that's the whole new landscape. And that capability warfare. is now, he said. Exactly. And you think about what would happen if the electrical grid in any one of the major cities or a number of the major cities were to go down. Forget threats outside of the U.S. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, just in those cities, people wouldn't know what to do. Yeah, They'd chaos on top of any other kind of thing. Everybody would reach for their iPhone or cell phone. There wouldn't be any. And, and wouldn't know what to do. Because wouldn't be any service. And then what to do. Right. right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And then if you decided to go see somebody, you'd 
get the gas tanks. Yeah, the gas pumps. The gas you know, pumps. That's what I was looking for. The and, gas pumps. And if you don't have any cash working. in your pocket, you try yeah. to go to the ATM machine. The ATM yeah, is dead. Nothing. Yeah, nothing works. Yeah, it's terrifying. And that technology is there now. So uh, all I can say is I'm glad he's there. Um, he told us he was on the National Commission on Defense Strategy, and had something to do with that. Uh, Defense strategy uh, report that came out. All right, very serious matters, and uh, delighted to have Senator Kyle with us. I miss him in the Senate. Uh, we very much miss that leadership and that voice. You're listening to the Bill Bennett Show. Bill Bennett Show. Let's take a break from politics and policy and talk a little football. The Super Bowl is this weekend. Patriots and Eagles here to preview the game is JB James Brown. Host of the NFL Today on CBS, Mr. Brown, welcome to the Bill Bennett Show. Doc, first of all, it's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, thank you very much for having me on here. This is the first DeMatha graduate, I believe, I have ever interviewed on the air. Truly, you must be jesting. Do you know the scroll of names of great DeMatha alums that may not compare to the Gonzaga grads, but there's some pretty significant names on that list, and I would dare suggest. I got my pen out. You, okay, good. You give you give Morgan Wooten a call to start with him Morgan first Wooten. and foremost. He is just awesome. Doc, I had a chance to uh, interview him about five weeks ago. We stay in contact, but I did a I'm blessed to have a uh, syndicated uh, TV show. It's the old Tim McCarver baseball sure, show. Sure, you do. And uh, so I filled in uh, a backfield for him since he's retired. And Morgan was a guest of mine. And do you know, his interview was so well-received around the country. He is just a real national resource. Mm-hmm. Tell this audience who Morgan Wooten is. How old is Morgan Wooten now? Morgan, I believe, is about 84 years of age. He was Dr. Bennett with the first uh, person inducted into the Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame for what he did principally solely at the high school level, was at that time the winningest high school basketball coach in the country. He was at the math, and I may may get it off by a couple years, but for 46 years, won, oh gosh, maybe 25 or so titles in the Washington, D.C. area, several national uh, high school basketball titles. He's a global ambassador for the game. He also selected all of the McDonald's All-American players, uh, the great John Wooden, God bless him, from UCLA, who, of course, won 10 national championships. He and Morgan um, did that together, and then Morgan, the last oh, probably 10, 15 years, selected all the players himself. He is truly a remarkable man. Mm-hmm. i got to ask you, James Brown, because you're not nearly as old as I am, but you got a couple of years under your belt, a couple. Oh, and, a, a few now, a and, few and now, Doc. My... Your producer, Ricky Jennings, can tell you that, but go ahead. All right, I am just checking my calendar here, and I believe it was on today, January 29th, 1965, that DeMatha High School beat Power Memorial High School, whose star was Lou Alcindor, a.k.a. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And you would have been about 15 years old. First of all, I know you have done your homework, so I am on my P's and Q's. I did not think about that date, but you're right. And given that you are, if I'm not mistaken, 
Brooklyn born, you would know that as well, because the great Power Memorial High School, you're right, had the great then Luau Cinder, named Luau Cinder, of course, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who played DeMatha the year before and beat DeMatha. I forget the score, but it was a close game. They agreed to play the following year at Coalfield House, which was then the stadium, um, the indoor arena on the campus of the University of Maryland. It was, at the time, the biggest high school basketball game in the country. 12,500 people packed into that arena. Boy, talk about my age now, Doc. I'm listening to it on radio. Yeah. Listening to that game. And, of course, DeMatha won and snapped that 71-game win streak of Lou Alcindor at that point in time. Fast forward real quickly. So I started doing games uh, after being cut by the Atlanta Hawks. Did not get a chance to realize my basketball dream. Yes, yes. I started doing games for the then Washington Bullets while working in corporate America. I go out to L.A. to do a game of the Lakers, and he looks at me, he being Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and he asks the question, did you go to that school? I said, what's that school you're referencing? Oh, he says, Samantha. Oh, I said, yes. From that point forward, he gave me about five or six word answers. He was messing with me. Yeah. And it wasn't <laughs> until I talked about his acting career uh-huh. with Robert Stack in the movie Airplane that he opened up and was effusive in his answers. So, oh, yes, sir. Too many memories flowing back. My audience is saying, "What? hey, the Super Bowl, guys. You guys are reminiscent about these D.C. high schools. Just one more thing. Because I remember, you'll find out, James, when you get older, that your short-term memory may go, but your long-term memory comes back. I remember reading in a newspaper called the Evening Star, the Washington Evening Star. Wow. I remember this. Wow. That, yes, indeed. And this stuck in my head that the DeMatha guys were practicing for, for Alcindor, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, by the guys on defense holding tennis rackets. Above their heads, to, you've to, got an amazing memory. Is, wow! You know, to, because of blocking shots, you might as well have a three-foot tennis racket or something. Anyway, but that was—I remember that resounded through the area, and those of us at Gonzaga, us, what were we like? Uh, you know, fourteen, five foot eleven guys. You know, <laughs> just forget it when it came to Dematha. Uh, What an awesome memory. And that was our then high school principal, John Moylan, who was an avid tennis player who had suggested to Morgan that he have the center, Bob Whitmore, use the tennis racket to simulate what it would be like shooting over top of Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And it worked magic. No question about it. Wow, great memory. All right. We just, you're a busy man. You're in Minneapolis, right? You're getting ready for for the game? Hey, Dr. Bennett, I'm excited about it. Uh, I've been doing this. And first of all, let me tell you, there's only about an eight-year uh, difference uh, between us. So we're, for all practical purposes, when you get older, probably when you get past 50, anybody who's got an eight- to ten-year difference, you're in the same era. So we're yeah. in the same era, to say the least. But I'm here to prepare. Um, actually, we do. I'm blessed to also host a show called Inside the NFL sure on Showtime. And uh, have been blessed to host Thursday Night Football when we have that part of the package. Uh, so I'm here to do Inside the NFL, and then I've got a few events to participate in. Tony Dungy, the Super Bowl winning yeah. coach of the Indianapolis Colts, he's getting the Pat Summerall Award for Excellence, and I'm humbled to be giving the invocation at That's that great. he and I are the best of friends, and then a couple of appearances. But I'm flying home. When we don't host the Super Bowl, which, by the way, we have at CBS next year in Atlanta, Doc, 
I prefer to get home. First of all, it typically is the first time I'm then able to attend church on a Sunday, and then I'll go home to watch it on TV with my family. So that's my routine. I'll be on a 6 a.m. flight back to the Washington, D.C. area. Yes, sir. I got to squeeze in a couple of football questions, Super Bowl questions. Here's one. It's just just curiosity. What is the deal with the Patriots? I mean, why can't they play fourth quarter in the first quarter? What is it? Um, You know what? They are probably the best example of master chess players. That first quarter, don't let them get ahead now. They get sufficiently ahead of you, it's lights out because they can't score. But they are the best prepared team in football. The stats back it up. In an era of design parity throughout the league, Dr. Bennett, they have been the unquestioned dynasty because those players, that organization, and as always, as you know, having um, been in significant positions throughout government in your career, it starts at the top. The tone is set from the top. And Robert Kraft um, sets it at the top. They've got the best coach in the business. They've got the most successful quarterback in the business who set the tone. It was almost like Larry Bird got when they were playing back for a Red Auerbach, God bless him, at the, um, the Boston Celtics and that great team. The players set the tone for anybody who was traded to that team, and that's what they've done so exceedingly well. Yeah, it's amazing. I was talking to, I don't know if the guy was joking, but this guy said, I am a, I'm a last 15 years Patriots fan. He said, and uh, a great team. He said, but I can't name 10, 10 of those guys. Who are these guys? No matter who they are, you know, they, they come in and, and then they star in the game and you've never heard of, of two thirds of them. It isn't that amazing yeah, because yeah. the philosophy there is everyone do your job. It is football is the is the the consummate team sport, and everyone does their job. And much like back when you and I were youngsters, basketball players were just basketball players. I know we've got specialists now. We call them back in the day. They called them small small forwards, big forwards, yeah. power forwards. Yeah. Hey, look, uh, they were just basketball players back then. And today, with the New England Patriots, they're just football players, almost positionless players. You can get one guy who the coaching staff has deemed to be the guy who brings a skill set to the field that they will be able to maximize against a weakness of their opposition and he will star and the next week he might be a reserve on the bench because they've deemed somebody else bringing a better skill set to the table. That's how masterfully they do their job. That's how everybody chimes in with whatever they do best to do your job. Quick questions then. we got to let you go and know how busy you are this week. Uh, Gronkowski, will he play? Um, that's to be determined. Okay. He is still in concussion protocol, which, as you well know, you and Ricky both, that's very serious business with the uh, National Football League uh, right now with um, uh, the preponderance of uh, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, CTE. Uh, so they're taking it very seriously. But he has been practicing. He looks good. I would think that he's going to be there. But there's another example of a tremendously talented, perhaps the best, most talented tight end in the business, although those in Kansas City might argue about okay. that. He if he's not there, they still can maximize other assets that they bring to the table and still get it done. But I would look for him to be there, though, Dr. Bennett. Mm-hmm. All right. Fix something for me. I was uh, bothered by the kneeling. I'm not, I don't want to talk about that. There's been enough. No, 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 no. That. Doc, any, anything is fair game. Go okay. ahead, sir. You can comment on that if you want. But what I was really upset about this year is it seemed to me, and I said to my son, we watch a lot of games together. Uh, I watch with both my sons. Uh, which is, uh, you might as well throw the ball because there's a 
50% chance a flag is going to come. What is with all the flags? Can we do something about that? Aren't there too many flags? You know what? Um, I would hope that that won't be the case, certainly in the Super Bowl and throughout the playoffs. It's been, uh, I think, the, uh, the uh, refs have exercised some patience, so they've been very judicious about it. Um, because the game is so offensively oriented, trying to be fan-friendly, um, yeah. I think we've seen more of that. But I think you're going to see less of that now because we're trying to make sure that it doesn't really hurt the game in terms of fan interest oh, and fan excitement. And, hey, and on the point about the kneeling, you know, the one good thing that has come out of this, though, Dr. Bennett, and I know that people sit on various sides of the fence, uh, I've always said that I think that the, the narrative was hijacked in terms of people thinking that it was anti-American, anti-flag, anti-police or law enforcement or military, when it was not. It was more pro-issues that have been systemic in communities across America. So wherever you sit on that side of the fence, attitude-wise, the good thing from my humble perspective that came out of it, and I recently did a story, uh, blessed to be a special correspondent for CBS News. I did a story on Howie Long, the Hall of Famer, with whom I used to work at Fox. His son, Chris, um, has been very actively engaged um, by the example of his parents. And it was awesome to see that while he said, and let me be clear by stating up front, I stand for the flag myself. I don't disrespect those who do with good conscience because they're they're actively engaged in trying to change the fabric of their communities. They want the flag to represent the same for everybody. I'm okay with that. I personally stand. So does Chris. But he was supporting those players. And the dialogue that has since taken place with leadership, the NFL ownership, and many aren't on that side of the fence. I get it. But if we could sit down at the table and as a Tip O'Neill, and certainly you would know better than me, and Ronald Reagan, God bless them both, sat down, they would get together and hammer things out. That's what needs to be done to find common ground. And what they're not asking for, they're not asking that the NFL be the panacea for all that ails America or is an ill, but to take action in those respective communities and not just be making money, but helping to change the fabric of those communities. Robert Kraft uh, and the Patriots have been doing that for a long time, and I got to know him better when we traveled. I was blessed to be the correspondent to travel with a number of Hall of Famers over to Israel. Israel's ambassador to the U.S., Ron Dermer, uh, thought yeah. of the idea of getting Hall of Famers to go over to Israel, see firsthand what was going on as opposed through the filter of the news, and be ambassadors for togetherness globally. And it was just a fascinating trip and to see how intimately involved Robert Kraft and his late wife, um, uh, Myra, were, uh, and certainly been a game changer for me, and I would hope that we would see more of that kind of t- togetherness. And, Doc, when we do talk again, if we do, I would love to be able to talk about issues like that as well, because you, yeah. like uh, the, uh, the former quarterback with the um, Buffalo Bills Jack in Kemp, Congress. And my partner, Jack, Jack Kemp. Kemp. What an awesome man who certainly tried to bridge the gap for people to be there. Why can't we do more of that? And, I, and you yeah. do that, and I would, like, I would like very much to discuss those kinds of things with you. You know, Kemp, Kemp I'll tell you a quick Kemp story. Kemp, Kemp and I were yes, partners. Sir. And he used to come by my office. I remember the last time he came by, he was always with a football player, came by with John Mackey. And I was mm-hmm. watching I was watching Super Bowl three. I was watching the Jets <laughs> beat the Colts mm-hmm. and John mm-hmm. Mackey walks in my office. It's like being caught with a dirty movie when your parents walk in or something. <laughs>
something, you know. I said, oh, something. What? Jack says, what are you watching? Uh, nothing. He says, isn't that Joe Willie? I said, oh, I don't think so. And he, <laughs> anyway, he says, just John Mackey. John had this big cowboy hat on. But he used to bring Mackey back, and he'd say, this is Bill Bennett. He's written 24 books. Man, I wish I'd written a book. Well, he was jealous of me, you know, writing books. And when I went into his office, he was always throwing footballs around. And, you know, we both wanted to trade places. He wanted to write the books, and I wanted to sit there and talk football anyway. Hey, and did you know I did a story once when I was working uh, back at Fox and also worked for HBO's Real Sports, uh, one of the best magazine shows on television. And I was doing a story on steroids. And when I went up to uh, interview uh, Senator John McCain, he was so brutally open and frank. He says, J.B., I'm about whatever he is. You know better than me, Dr. Bennett, about 5'9", 5'10". He says, look, if I had been told that steroids could help make me about 6'3", and be a powerful linebacker, I would have done such. He was making a point, though, about how insidious it is, and we had to take action to try to prevent that kind of usage. But he was so open, and he's another one that I have respect for as well, too. But anyway, I look so much forward to talking with you more about matters like that as well. Now, I don't know if your producer, Ricky Jennings, is he squirming over there as I'm heading outside of sports talking to you, Doc. Yeah, I know. He's giving me all sorts of signs. I don't know. Was it offsides or what? What? Too many men on the field? The time, right? He's waving his arms around. I don't know what he's doing. Thank we're you, way James. Over time, I know. Thank you. Hey, Dr. Bennett, good talking with you. I look forward to talking with you again, too, buddy. Thank you very much. All right. We'll be looking okay, for you good. on Sunday. Bye-bye. Okay. God bless you. Bye-bye. All right. So that was James Brown. What a pleasure. First mm-hmm. time I've ever talked to him. Uh, and uh, JB's about- the best, right? I mean, he's... He's, so he's good. good. He's yeah. really good. Yeah, impressive. He's your buddy, right? You've known him for a long time. Yeah. So, yeah, people may have heard him referring to a producer of your show named Ricky Jennings. Uh, yeah, that's <laughs> is that you? <laughs> yeah, he's, he's talking about I know about you me. was Claude Jennings, no? Right, yeah. So, you know, Claude's my name. So, my, I'm named after my dad. I'm Claude Jennings Jr. For some reason, when my dad was younger, for reasons that was never explained to me and really kind of vague by my aunts, um, they called him Ricky. And so, when I was born, I was little Ricky. And so family and friends call me Little Ricky, grew up, family still call me Ricky. That's how JB knows me. And so he still refers to me as Ricky. Uh, how do you know him? Do you know him from far back? Yeah. So uh, J- I met JB when I was in a church in Washington, D.C., a church called Rama Christian Center. Great. Okay. Great guy. Good. Great, good, uh, you know, man of faith and, and a really good. Yes. Person. Yes. Clearly. Really smart, really sharp. Yeah. Clearly. You know, I, I realized that the thing about the conversation, I should have said something about the Eagles. <laughs> uh, because it was it was all about the Patriots, right. but uh, the Patriots is, are playing someone. There is uh, another <laughs> team in there, and uh, I think they got a shot. I think they got a real shot. Mm-hmm. Is Gronkowski playing? As far as we know, uh, you know what? It's still up in the air. Uh, I believe he will play, but yeah. he's got to go through that concussion protocol, and uh, so we'll see. Yeah, Patriots always do this. Well, we don't know, you know. We don't know about the glove. Yeah, Tom Brady, the whole hand thing. Yeah, but they they always end up showing up and playing and (laughs) and winning, you know. Right. But but we shall see. We shall see. Anyway, great pleasure to talk to James Brown. And I thank you, Claude or Ricky, as the case (laughs) may be, for uh, making the introduction. No problem. No problem. All right. That's, uh, I think that does it. Uh, I think that's a show. Uh, Claude, if people want to email the show, they can do it. Tell them how to do it. Right. Just uh, send an email to Bill Bennett Podcast at gmail.com. Bill Bennett Podcast at gmail.com. Yes, and thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you later.